Blog Talk Radio. Welcoming you here, no matter when you are listening, either live or across time, because tonight, and really always on this show, we often reflect upon the nature of time, and how time really carries no boundaries, not as we've been taught Now, I will tell you, we are going to hopefully have a guest on from Sydney, Australia. She is a novelist and quite the Renaissance woman is really a very appropriate term for her. Um, Carmel Nyland is the author of A Darker Magic, This Way Comes. And we are attempting to get her connected in here um, via the online interface. So um, I may kind of be multitasking here as I'm talking to you, the audience, um, while I try to see if I can help her. Um, And one of the things I will say is, um, as an engineer, and this has come up before, um, those of us who are interested in science, interestingly enough, many, many of us, early on were welcomed into that world of expansiveness. For some reason, many scientists that I have known, including myself, although I've never viewed myself as a traditional scientist, although what is that really? What is that really? It's about the pursuit of truth. That's what it is. And what we think of as a so-called rationalistic approach is actually much more expansive than that. And even that is logical and rational. And the thing is, fantasy, these legends, these stories that have captured our imagination, many of us as children, mythology, legend, the Arthurian legends in particular have captured the imagination for a very long time. These stories have woven a gateway for us into the mystical, into what is truthfully the reality that we can explore. And um, 
still seeing here as I speak, see if our guest is having any ability to connect. It looks like we're having some some issues, mostly not technical, just just um, trying to get the instructions across. Um, so we'll see if we're able to connect tonight. If not, we're flexible. This happens on occasion, and we will simply aim to connect another time. But I I don't want to leave um, this this unset if our guest isn't able to manage to make the connection. Um, just how expansive her work is in exploring really a wonderful story that connects the modern world to the past. And in that way, we do think more expansively about time. I think what I'm going to do right now, um, actually, I'm going to go ahead and play a song for a moment just to see if I can get some more information on on helping our author to connect here.
Okay, we're going to shift gears here for a little bit tonight, and um, I am going to open up the chat. And I did send some additional instructions to our guest, and we'll see if she's able to connect. And like I said, if not, we will aim to find another way to bring her in in the future. And um, with live radio, sometimes these things happen. And let me say that I am just so delighted. In fact, let me take this time right now to say that it is just it just warms my heart to see how many people across the world in so many diverse places how many of you are discovering this show and i just really hope that it's speaking to your hearts i saw that we are actually gaining some audience in south korea for example, if you are in South Korea, I think that many of us can only begin to imagine what it must be like there to feel um, like you certainly would like to get beyond fear, to that space beyond fear. And, you know, maybe some of us do relate, those of us who are a little bit older, um, because many of us... um, who grew up in a time when I was a teenager. In fact, I will address this generally. Who was this person who, when I was young, I voraciously read, for example, fantasy, much like the book that um, our our guest, who hopefully, if she can get in, um, has written. Um, And, you know, Fantasy is not just fantasy. It connects us to the real world. But something that was happening in that day and age is we really didn't know during the Cold War um, at any time. You you really were raised in a way to think that, well, you know, you could wink out in an instant. And when I was a young child into my teen years, that was certainly something that I thought about. And I'm sure it had its mark on all of us in those days, what that was like. And there are listeners out there I know who are older than me and experienced what that was like, for example, in the 50s and the early 60s. And it, you have to wonder, and this is true across the world right now, if these times these times that we are experiencing, if you truly believe that there is an expansive reason for us to be here on this planet, if you truly do connect to that greater reality, the mystical, which is truthfully the real, even as we navigate through a very solid reality, those mystical things, those synchronicities, those things that occur that you simply can't explain. And I have thought to myself many times what a joy it would be for any number of scientifically oriented folks that I have known, what a joy it would be to realize that those worlds 
that they dreamt about. And I see someone on the line. I will pick it up in just a second. Those worlds are much closer to reality than you might ever have dared to imagine. Ah, lost the person on the line. <laughs> well, I don't think that was the author. I, I think um, um, it was a caller. If I will um, open the lines if anyone would like to call in. We're just kind of um, spontaneously talking here. The phone line in is 310-807-5104. And I was going to open the chat here, see if I can manage to do that. Now, I know that I'm speaking to many of you across time in the podcast, and the book that we were hoping to explore tonight is has a lot to do with time. And I often wonder, it's, we could spend a lifetime exploring the mysteries of time because the linear reality we live in isn't quite what we think it is. Okay, I'm just starting up the chat, although that means that you'll have to reload the page if you're a blog talk radio, um, if you have a login, you can participate there. Ah, here's a call I'm going to take. If you are at area code 201, um, if you're simply listening, just let me know. Um, otherwise, I'm going to bring you on just to chat with you. Hello, it's Carmel Nyland calling from oh, Sydney, Australia. Oh, my goodness. You made it, Carmel. <laughs> oh, yes. I did, I, and you know, it's I, taken 15 minutes, and I apologise. I oh, had just realised that we're working with te- we're working with technology, Californian technology, which we obviously don't use, and we've got to go back to um, simple telephony. Oh dear. Well, now isn't that interesting? <laughs> Since your book has something to do with connections to technology as well and I was just spontaneously reflecting here not really I, I I had no way of knowing if you'd been a, you'd been able to connect so I'm so delighted you are here and so let me fully introduce you to the audience now that that you are here um, and um, you Carmel have done quite an amazing number of things beyond being um, an author and quite the historian with a passion for the Arthurian legends, you have been a CEO in government, and it seems that you have taken on some very expansive things when you were in that role, and a teacher, and I see you are the president of the Iris Society of Australia. Tell me, what is the Iris Society, Carmel? Well, Iris is a flower. And yes, it's grown yes. particularly in the northwest of um, and, Cali- and in California, where it has native, uh, beautiful Californian irises, and we uh-huh. grow all of those in Australia. Oh, okay. So but it is related to the flower. Yeah, you've missed an important thing. I am the mother of a U.S. citizen. I lived oh. in the U.S. for five and a half years, and my yeah. beautiful son was born in Tompkins County in Ithaca, New York. Yes, yes. So you have quite the connection to us here 
as well. And I know that you That's had right. been a teacher there. Is that true that you were That's a teacher right, yes. in Ithaca? Well, and when certainly... I when I wrote this book uh-huh. uh, about which is all about the quest for Merlin. When I yeah. wrote this book, I had in mind my students there. They were wonderful. And I, that, they were like my imaginary friends sitting in with me as I wrote. You know, I have heard this from other authors, that that is a wonderful way to write a book. And um, I, I'm trying to think. There was a country music. Loretta Lynn, this is kind of a, another the country music legend here, she was a brilliant singer, and the only way she could sing was at first to to imagine singing to her children, or she sang to her children. And so, so you write to those who you know. Um, to my students in Ithaca, New York. How wonderful! I think that is absolutely wonderful. And one of the things that. I was saying in the introduction is it's been my experience because I came from a scientific kind of a, a, a diverse background, but many scientists I have known, Carmel, have a fascination, absolute fascination, not only for fantasy, but beyond that for Merlin and for all of these legends. Um, there is something that draws us to it and not just scientists, but really I think in America, absolutely, we are drawn to these tales. Why is that, Karma? What is it about these tales we, that just draws us? I tell in? you that, that it's it's universal. Where whether it be Homer, whether they be biblical stories, whether they be local fables, we as authors return to them time and time again and rework them. And rework them with our own consciousness. So ours would be a modern consciousness. Uh, and we look at it and we say, um, I've got a scientific, I've done science as well. And I look at it uh, with a scientific eye and I say, how would it be possible that this man, Merlin, in the legend, can time travel? And then I try and work out how that would happen. And I go to modern equivalents like Tesla, uh, who is the master of time travel, and I read his stuff and I try and then work out scientifically how Melvin could have done it. Yes, yes. And that's just absolutely brilliant that that you've gone so in-depth in such a way. And Tesla... Is such an unsung hero. Um, oh, he certainly I mean, is. He, his work was suppressed, and we would be so much farther along had had it not been. And yes. Um, now, talk to us about the nature of time. I think that you know many in the audience listening, um, we are taught about time in a certain way. And yet that way is quite rigid and not necessarily connected to what is actually real. Can you reflect well, a little bit more about time? Yes. Our, our view of time is lineal. So yes. we've got past, present, and future. And these, if you can imagine a river, and the river is running into the sea, well, we would 
imagine there is the source of the river, there's the mouth of the river, and then there's the bulk of it. And if we were above it in an aeroplane, we would be able to see the source and we would be able to see where it flows into the sea. And we think of time like that because that yeah. makes sense to us, that it's kind of moving and it's got a beginning and an end. But time can't be like that. Time must be able to be bent back on itself. So just imagine the infinity side, how it moves in a kind of figure eight on its side. And if you think of time more like that, of moving in a circular fashion, Mm-hmm. you get some idea about how it would be possible to time travel. So just if we could go back to something like the Enid Blyton and the faraway tree, and the faraway tree had all these lands which would arrive at the top of the tree depending on what day it was, and each would open up a wonderful adventure. If in our mind we could think more like that, time is a circle, and that it's possible to have the parts of time aligned with other parts of the circle, making it easy for um, Merlin to progress through. Uh, Merlin says at one stage, look, I was born, and he gives the time he was born, which was about 332 and he said, uh, sorry, 432, and he said, he says to the woman he loves, Emily, he says, now, you're in the year 2017, and the only thing you can conclude, and the only thing we can agree on, is that there's a thousand, more than a thousand years difference between us, and according to your thinking, I've got to be dead, but here I am talking to you, so mm-hmm. how does it work? And then that gets him into trying to describe in simple terms how it works and the circle makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. We, you know, I would only hope when you speak to your students that more students are learning now um, in ways that when I was young we certainly weren't taught um, because Time is circular, and just the the limits of time that we were taught just don't exist. And and really, theoretically now, they really are beginning to explore ways that time travel would be theoretically possible. I've seen that in the news. And, of course, anyone who goes to a channeling session uh, in California will talk to beings who lived a thousand years or two thousand years or three thousand years before. Fortunately, most of them can speak English and the result of that is that you can talk across time in exactly the same way as you are talking to me. Your day is Friday. Mm-hmm. Sorry, wrong thing. My day your is Friday day and your day Friday. is Thursday. Yes, I know it. Yes. yes. You're talking to me at midday Friday in Australian time. Right. So we're, we're playing with it ourselves. We really are. And, 
you know, one of the things I've reflected upon many times is, you know, in, as we are discovering that this multiverse, as, as if we didn't know how grand it is, so often you hear, you know, how could we communicate to anything far away or so long ago? Because, you know, when you look out into the into the the stars, you're looking back in time. and And yet, when we realize there's no limit, just like you say, then really there are no barriers of communication. Well, I conceptualize this novel as two worlds, Mm -hmm. one referred to as the other world, and they are like parallel universes. Yes. And if you find the right portals, and we know that there are sensitive energy spots right across the planet, and if you can go to those portals... One, for example, is on the top of Glastonbury Tour in England. Glastonbury Tour being the kind of partly artificially created um, hill in Glastonbury. Now, at that point where there is the the remnants of the Tour being a St. Michael Church, at that point it is easy, the realms are close together. And they use it, my characters use it as a stepping off point. Each one of the ancient sites in Britain, which used to be used by the Druids for um, navigation, so they navigated usually at night, um, using something like, we would call it a broomstick, but it actually was something more like a, a staff, and they would use the staff, and they could go from one energy point to another. Now, every one of those energy points now has a church to St. Michael on it. And mm-hmm. I find that, one, consistent, and two, extremely interesting. And it's yes. worth exploring as an author why that would be so. Yes, absolutely. Is there a particular symbolism on these sites that, that link them together? Um, yes, they go on a particular line. Those people who are sensitive, who can work with their energy and understand the lines that join them, would call them in England, they would be called ley lines. Yes, yes. And at the we've point heard where they cross, um, when the uh, Druids were exterminated by Christianity, that particular point where they crossed, would be given the name Banbury Cross, and the cross would take on a different meaning. So Charing Cross is another example. That was a point where the ley lines crossed, and Druids would use the energy of that point to continue flying. In their staff, they used silicon technology. Now, we're starting to use it with Silicon Valley in California. Yes, yes. but we are largely a carbon-based technology. And they use silicon, and the silicon was a crystal of particular form and magnitude which they put in the head of their stuff. And that crystal was able to line up with the, um, uh, the, the energy of the Earth and amplify it which gave them liftoff. So it was able to 
allow them not only to move against gravity, but propel them in certain directions according to where they pointed their staff. So I've used the Druidic teaching to make Merlin mobile. And because I'm essentially a teacher, I've always got to explain it. And that doesn't make good fantasy because most fantasy writers don't tell you how it really happens. They tell you the mystery. And I, I just don't think kids buy that anymore. They want to know, all of us want to know, but how do you do it? So we, I go out of my way to explain making Merlin a teacher and therefore he had to have someone to teach and he had to have someone whose knowledge of physics and science was equal to his. So therefore I had to find a very intelligent girl, well-educated, and her friends who will also join her so they will ask the modern questions of an ancient mage or druid. Yeah. And expect answers. Yeah. And expect to understand the answers. Yeah. Now your your work here it seems that it really appeals to all ages that whether young adult through through adults that what you've created here is something that can speak to all of us. I hope so, because the best feedback I've been getting is not from the kind of um, high school students I wrote it for, but Mm -hmm. I'm getting the best feedback from women rather than men, and I'm getting it from women of a certain age. Uh, a certain age maybe who began with Enid Blyton and loved the Harry Potter series. Yes, I was well, just my, thinking about that. Mm-hmm. My Harry, I think I'm writing for children who are older than the Harry Potter, yeah. but who are yeah. still too young for Game of Thrones. You know, up somewhere in the middle. Yes, yes. Tell me, how does... Um, how does it seems that um, the mystical forest, the notion of the mystical forest and what might what one might find within a mystical forest, very much has a relationship to to the legends that um, we we think about here. Can you um, talk to that at all? What 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 role does nature play? For Merlin and for for all of these characters. Well, firstly, it seems mystical in the way it was explained, maybe in the Middle Ages. But we are starting to actually know the science of it. So the Druidic teaching was that if you knew how to speak the language of the wood, and they had a name for that, if you could speak the language of the wood, you could find out what was happening many, many miles away from you. Now, how do you do that? You have to be able to speak, they called it Y-E-D, Y-W-Y-E-D. And you would communicate with a tree, particularly an oak, and the oak would be able to tell you what was happening 500 miles away. 
Now, the oak would do this because the oak, um, imagine the network that is created by a telephone network. We'll, we'll go primitive and talk about telephones. The wires are in it. Well, the, the oak uses instead the filaments of its root, and the filaments of its roots are connected through plants right across the face of, of a country. Mm-hmm. And it can find out information and be connected to information um, that is so many miles away. Do you follow what I mean? Oh, yes. I, 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 even, I totally. You know, I saw and something it, in the news. When we put highways like in and we dig up these things, we cut yes. that particular system. So one of the things we're doing in Australia is putting under our highways little tunnels to allow our native animals to be able to cross it because we know that they follow the lines, particular lines of the earth, and it really doesn't matter if we want to put a four-lane highway through. Uh, They will still cross and be healed by the cars as they're doing it. Yes. So we've got to put tunnels underneath so that they can complete their route on the crossing. Aboriginal Australians use exactly the same process for navigating from one end of Australia to another. So Australia is almost the same size as the United States. Yes, yes. So you can imagine the vast distances they walked and they used the lines of the earth as they walked and they had songs that they sang so that they would recognise where they were at any point in time. So Merlin used exactly the same technology. He understood about the lines of the earth. He understood how the trees and all the animals connected and talked to one another. And if we know the language, we can connect with them too. But for him it was easier because we hadn't put um, four-lane highways in between over the top of us. Yes, yes. You know, I had heard in the in the news that heaven forbid we ever have this wall that they keep speaking about, you know, to our south of where I, and that if that ever was built, which I don't believe it would be, um, animals, the migratory patterns of animals would be significantly impacted by that. Whenever we put up any kind of a barrier, um, we're impacting nature. And we lose sight of that. And, you know, it's so interesting yes. how many many of the things you're saying have been verified in the news recently. I saw also something about the roots of trees being connected, you know, over long distances, like a vast network, exactly what you say. And well, it's scientifically, scientifically we, we, we haven't actually moved to the next step. Um, and the next step is, that not only is it uh, feasible, but is it a method of transmission? We can see that certain salts and chemicals would move along those fibrous root systems, but can those chemicals that are moving along those fibrous root systems carry messages which can be decoded? Now, Merlin would say, yes, they can, if you know the way how. And if you change your perception, 
where you don't, where you say, no, this can't happen, and you give it a yes instead. It can happen, but how does it happen? And explore that. Yeah. And ancient, I'm sure that ancient civilizations had silicone technology and used natural, um, very, very natural things in building. Um, the, the, the Druids also had another very interesting thing, and they have just found one of these in the Orkney Islands. It's like a beehive hut made of stone, and at the top uh, it has a small uh, chimney, uh, like a, an escape, and inside they would sit like an Indian sweat lodge and take particular minute quantities, the kind of quantities that are used in homeopathy, minute qualities of poison like belladonna, which would become hallucinogenic. They would also, at the time they took that, include a little of the DNA of what they wanted to shapeshift into. So let's say you wanted to be a fox because you needed fox information where a particular coven of foxes were. So they would take the hair of a fox and Merlin would take the hair of that, mix it with the other things, and he would be able to shapeshift into a fox. So his body would still be in this kind of beehive hut, but his spirit would move into this fox. And then he could go into the fox's den and take two of the cubs out with the permission of the mother and say that he was going to raise these cubs to be his spirit, to be his guides. The mother would allow that and then he would return to the hut with the two foxes. He would return to his proper self and his shape-shifting would be finished. Now, we actually found in the Orkney's Islands about one year ago, one of these spirit huts, as they're called. So that's the way the ancients are speaking to us because we're approaching their lives with respect. We're not saying how, um, not trying to make them seem like us and seem primitive. Instead, we're approaching them with respect. Archaeologists are doing brilliant jobs recreating and reaching um, philosophies as to what it might be. Now, they wouldn't agree with me. They would think it was some kind of sauna thing that the um, Vikings brought in. But they're getting there. And eventually when they start reading some people, they'll get it right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I have a question about the, just in general, the, the, the legends that we've been taught, these characters, these people that we have come to know within the legend, um, who really was King Arthur? Was there a Guinevere? Was Lancelot? All the different knights that, that we have known. How does that um, relate to your story? And, and I know you have studied very deeply the, the history of all of this. Um. Well, I think there are a couple of questions in that. The first thing is, were they historical characters? And yes. that's one of the great debates. 
I don't have any doubt that they were historical characters, right? Secondly, who were they? Well, I can answer that in about five different ways. Let me begin by saying that I believe in reincarnation and those men and women were a particular set of men and women who had been here many times before. And it's very interesting what they were trying to do. Not only were they trying to keep Britain um, safe from invasions of refugees who, as a result of climate change and great disruption, were leaving their lands and rather viciously trying to take their own. That's one thing they were doing. Uh, And that's historically accurate. Why weren't they completely successful is another question. Because Arthur, by all telling, was a brilliant warrior. Why didn't he stop them all coming? And then I move away from that and look at it philosophically. But if he had stopped them all, then Britain wouldn't have been the had the mix of DNA that was necessary for it to one to be a great seafaring nation, and for it to be a great seafaring nation, its invaders had to come to it by sea. And secondly, for it to have a language which was an amalgamation of about seven major roots, and from that could be created a beautiful language that the man who wrote Shakespeare could fashion so that every immigrant going into a new world from Britain uh, would speak a beautiful language, which you and I share and can communicate in now. So there is also another subset with the Arthurian legend, and that's one of Christianity. Part of the Arthurian legend is about the grail, the cup that was used at the Last Supper. Now, why would these men be so fascinated with it? Why would they be successful in having an experience of it? And why would so many legends about that come about? Now, I'm not going to give you the answer to that. You're going to have to read the later books. But there will be an answer to that. But there's also something else. The part, um, Arthur was successful in drawing a line across Britain, which the Celts were on one side and they spoke one language, and the invaders were on the other. And that line was never breached. So that includes part of the northern part of England, uh, Wales, Cornwall, and then if you think also of the islands of the Irish Sea, like uh, the Isle of Man, and then Ireland. Ireland was never invaded. And that has meant that there has been a wellspring of Christianity preserved there, who then, after the invaders came and settled in England, they then went back and re-Christianised the rest of it. But they didn't stop in England to re-Christianise the rest of Europe at the same time. So what I want you to do is to think of the Arthurian legend within a far wider geopolitical concept 
And when you start doing that, you can understand that all they needed was a man called Merlin, who was a wonderful poet. And he himself was a predecessor to the man who would reincarnate and write Shakespeare. And he would write legends that he would teach to the Welsh bards who would then cross over through Brittany and go into France and sing the stories of these legends there. And Merlin deliberately didn't answer all the questions because if you answer all the questions, you kill the legend. He had a kind of half-spoken about why there was a great attraction between Lancelot and Guinevere. He left it half-spoken as to why Arthur was such a great great character. And that allowed everybody's imagination to come in and create something special. And when they did, they created chivalry. They created the notion that a woman was a sacred being and she was to be venerated. And it was the beginning, if you like, of feminism. So bringing it all full full circle, it's a wonderful legend, and it's given us many great things. Yes, yes. You know, um, I I had stumbled on something. I've been. It, it's nice to have an expert here who's studied so much, and I'm curious. Um, some years ago, I was studying something in Roman history. And I discovered that surrounding the time of Seneca and surrounding Seneca, the the historical philosopher Seneca, um, there was something like a round table. And I thought, my goodness, it sounds like the round table. And so I wondered, is there a relationship? And I know this is a very odd question, but it is something I stumbled upon and I've never had the opportunity to ask anyone who has studied. So I can the answer it this legend. way: Did Seneca have a round? Did Seneca participate in a round table? Yes, because some of the mysteries associated with the Arthurian circle and the round table had come in through the rite of Mithras. Mithras was or uh, was a uh, a god that create around which grew up a religion which was participated in by Roman soldiers, the legionnaires. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the rites of Mithras uh, disappeared into uh, things like Masonic legends today. So they have continued over centuries. And Seneca was a participant in those rites. Now, Seneca was a particular energy, and he also reincarnated at the time of the Knights of the Round Table. So yeah. I'll give you those kind of clues. I would he was, believe he that. He was a superb intellect and um, a man who... Be, he, I think his purpose was to provide some balance to the madness of the emperor at the time. Um, and um, Seneca was a reincarnation of, um, gosh, let me see who it is. Um, 
an earlier run of Cicero. Cicero. Mm-hmm. So he was the reincarnation of Cicero. So he took uh, the law uh, further on and in different directions to the way that Cicero did. And he was there to provide some balance to the madness of Nero. Because yes. we need yes. mad people from time to time, as you realise, with uh, the present political situation you have in the United States. Because those people, when they come in, fester the rot. They make it so obvious that things are wrong that it's easier than later when they're gone, and they do go, um, to fix them up. Yes, it, it, it seems like we live in a time of, of many catalysts. Is, is really what we do. What we're seeing, we do. And, and that it helps to 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 keep the faith in that way that that these times shall pass. That that we are they that will. we're in the midst, and we of. will learn a great deal for them because we've ha- you've had a brilliant president, right? Though you called him the professor a man who was ethical, a man who was legal, a man people looked up to. Now you have a contrast, and the contrast is sharp, and it makes certain things to you very clear that you may have to rectify in the United States. We watch it with fascination from Australia and say that he must be a very great master to actually to be able to show America the things he has to show. Anyway, yeah, enough yeah. of politics. Yes, I know, I know. But, but you just shared something important that that, you know, there are the the teachings that the things that we learn in these situations are immense and and when you believe in reincarnation you have to believe that anyone who takes on a role like that is taking on a very big job <laughs> to to be a catalyst in such a way. But yes, to bring about to, radical change. Yes, yes, to bring about radical change. Um, and and um, you know maybe we should relate this back. Let's talk about Morgana, for example, in the Arthurian legend. Morgana, we have yes. What what? There's a a catalyst in a way, or um, so. So yes. there. Yes, please, please Hello. share. What is the well, true nature of what, that aspect? Well, I'll of tell you what my take on Morgana is. I do. I loved the myths of Avalon, but the myths of Avalon turned her into a heroine, and I always was of the view that Morgana was pure darkness. She was as close to evil as you could get. Um, she and Arthur came from the same womb. So Egern, who was the wife first of Golwa, uh, who was the Duke of Cornwall, and he was the warlord, and he would work for the kings. Now, he dies, but before he dies, Egern um, lies with Uta Pendragon, and Arthur comes from that. Arthur's half-sister was from her previous relationship with Gorwa, who was a nasty piece of work. Mm-hmm. And thank God he went. 
So you've got the two of them, and they are brought up in isolation because at that time they had a principle that any child who um, was a uh, uh, was, was destined to be a great one, to be a king or something like that, had to be fostered out. So at about age six or eight, they moved off somewhere else and they grew up in isolation from the other members of their family. Morgana was sent away too, but not as far as Arthur was sent away. She would later seduce Arthur and... Who would, he would know that he was having relationship with his half sister. Um, she knew, but he didn't. He will. She will give birth to Mordred, who will eventually kill Arthur. Now, um, I believe in that particular kind of relationship. Now, Morgana was the epitome of everything. She was the exact opposite of everything that Guinevere was. Guinevere was like a Mary Magdalene. She was um, uh, she was vibrant. She was brilliant. She was beautiful. She was faithful. Um, she was she just lit up the room. Think a blonde version of Angelina Jolie, right? As yeah. to how beautiful yeah. she would be. Think of it, of Angelina Jolie more as Maleficent and you get a picture of the beauty of Morgana. Yeah. That she was stunningly beautiful and she made a number of marriages and she had a number of affairs and she she was an expert poison and she would use poison to get rid of anyone who in her way she was the original nasty piece of work and great 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 copy yes yes and there's always a fascination with that character I think you know we have a caller on the line and and we may pull this show close ah this show slightly over I'm going to see if we can bring a caller on to ask you a question at area code 843 Hello, you're on the line. You would pull me in soon as I put a piece of toast in my mouth. Can you hear me? Hello. Yes, yes. yes Do you I have can. a question? Uh, well, I really like what you guys are talking to. Uh, it's interesting how it shows how the pendulum swings back and forth as far as... Um, the attention of man and what winds up happening. I'm just enjoying what you're sharing. I just want to thank you. But I don't have a question right now. Okay. Well, thank you. for That's that's very nice of you at the end of the show to, to let us know that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and actually, we actually only have a few minutes left in the live program, and um, I thought I would just give you the opportunity to once again um, just tell people about where they can find 
your book and um, the the ways that you are getting about talking about it and sharing about it and what's coming next from you because this book is a part of right. the series, as you have said. That's right. The book's name is A Dark Magic This Way Comes, which is a play on a, a on something that was in Macbeth. Um, it is the story of about three days of Merlin's life when he meets the love of his life. Amelia, he calls her, because he thinks in Latin. And everything has got to end in a vowel so he can properly approach it. Her real name is Emily. And she and her friends, uh, through a variety of reasons, were able to go into Merlin's time and have a series of adventures there. It's set in Devon, England, and also in um, around Glastonbury. And it relates to the darker magic of Morgana and various other people who lived at that time. Merlin's Secrets is the name of the series, and there are five books in it. The second book is called The Curse of the Dragon Kings. So that is about Uta Pendragon, who is, who is Arthur's father, and his elder brother, who's called Aurelius. These are historical characters. The other, the other books in the series will pursue Arthur, the Grail, um, the love affairs, etc., and yeah. the conquering, uh, uh, and a lot of warfare. The book is available on Amazon. It is available in some bookstores, but because I'm not sure what your catchment there is, I think going to Amazon is probably the quickest and easiest. It costs um, about, I think it's $19. Um, and it's, you know, you can get it in Kindle or various other forms as well, which yes, costs a lot yes. less. Yes, and I know many people are using Kindle these days. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for for braving the interface and coming in through the old-fashioned way. I'm so delighted that you were able to be with us tonight. And um, I very much look forward to what's coming up next in this series. So, So thank you again. You're welcome. And remember, it's it's. Um, I'm talking on Friday. You're talking on Thursday. Yes, uh, time yes. is relative. <laughs> Isn't that true? That's that's a wonderful reminder. Um, well, take care and thank you again. You're welcome. Goodbye. Goodbye. And um, for. Um, we've said farewell to our live audience, but for those of you that I know listen to the podcast, and I know that many of you are in different parts of the world, um, and hopefully you can find the book on Amazon. Um, the next show is with a returning guest. Joan Sirio has a new book out, which is very exciting.
um, and we will be talking about her book, Into the Heart of Love, which will be a week from today at the show. This is kind of the special time for the show at 7 p.m. prime time. We have a special every once in a while. We'll be going back to our regular time at noon Pacific, and that will be on Thursday, June 1st. And you can learn all about this show at FrontierBeyondFear.com. Today's show will be highlighted there in the archive for quite some time, and really will be in that archive um, indefinitely. And we have quite an archive of shows now, um, now that we are in the seventh year of broadcast. Um, Thank you, Blog Talk Radio, for featuring the show today on the front page. I greatly appreciate that when that happens, and I... I hope, like our caller, that this show has reached you with a topic that intrigues so many of us. Um, It is a legend that many of us grew up with, and the mystery lingers with us all. And so please do visit Carmel Nyland's website, a darker magic, thiswaycomes.com. Take care, everyone. See you next time. Thank you.